this and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Who me, I Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into the Trap Draw Podcast. My name is Randy. Thank you to Mr. Jeezy, as always. Folks, today is a tennis episode. I always love doing these. Today, I am talking with author and writer Christopher Clary. You can find him on Substack, which I will ask him about. And uh, for all you tennis book fans, he is working on a big biography of Rafa Nadal. I'm going to ask him a bit about that. But the occasion for tennis talk, of course, Wimbledon is kicking off today, Monday, July 3rd. It's going to be a good couple weeks from the uh, the grass courts over across the pond. So I hope you enjoy. Before I get into the interview, I want to thank our sponsor for today, and that is Precision Pro. Did you know we have our own rangefinder and carrying case now? I hope you do. But if not, We've partnered up with our friends at Precision Pro Golf to customize the NX10 rangefinder with your favorite NLU designs to rep the pod on the course. Head to precisionprogolf.com slash NLU and use code no laying up altogether, no laying up, to save $20 on the rangefinder and case. We have been using the NX10 for almost a year, and this rangefinder is a tank. It locks onto the target lightning quick. And it's got great additional features such as slope switch, HD optics, and magnetic cart mount. All of that makes the NX10 our go-to choice on the course. You won't find better customer care package in golf from free battery replacements to industry-leading customer service plus a 90-day money-back guarantee. It's a heck of a deal. There's a reason Precision Pro has been our trusted partner for years. So again, don't wait. Go to precisionprogolf.com NLU Get $20 off your NLU rangefinder and carrying case with code no laying up. All together, no laying up. Thank Precision Pro Golf. And now here's my conversation with Christopher Clary. Well, welcome back, Christopher Clary, uh, one of my favorite, favorite writers and analysts and just people in the world of tennis. Welcome back to the Trap Draw, Christopher. I really appreciate you taking the time. Where, where does this interview find you today? Hey, uh, Randy. No, I'm actually back in um, in North Shore of Boston at my house here and just got back from the French Open. was over there for about a month. Had some big changes in my life since I talked to you last, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit, but definitely uh, yeah, definitely has been an interesting time for me to be able to research this next book and start really writing, you know, uh, pretty freely on, on Substack and, and being free of those daily deadlines with the New York Times, you know, for such a long time where I've over 30 years writing for them on a daily basis at the at the majors. So it's definitely some changes. But right now I'm back in Boston settling in to write this next book on Rafa Nadal. And let's start right there. I am so excited. As you've said, you're, you're focusing on a biography 
of Nadal. I imagine it's going to be somewhat in the vein of your book about Roger Federer. Uh, and for folks that have not picked that up, it's called The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. I give it my highest recommendation. Uh, what can you tell us about the, the Nadal book? And is there any timeline on the release yet? You know, I would love to book a, a, another meeting with you, <laughs> another conversation <laughs> with you in about, in about 10 or 11 months time when the book is supposed to come out. So we'll see. I'm, I'm really just getting started on the writing. I've been doing mostly research for the last few months, and it's going to be a real, uh, you know, fun, challenging push now. I, I, kind of in the Federer vein, you know, we, somebody I've covered from the very beginning of his pro career, and um, I don't want to do a, a classic sort of cradle to uh, tennis grave you know, biography. And you know, Rafa may play a couple more years, knowing him, he's not done yet. He may find a way to come back from this latest injury and and play some more tennis. I hope he does. But I, well, I want to try to do it yeah. in a you know a more original way, and, and I, the structure is going to be hopefully something that's not going to be a typical biography. Let's put it that way. Wonderful. And, of course, we'll look forward, and you're certainly welcome to come back on and, and talk about it once it is uh, either released or in the run-up to the release. You mentioned that you're on Substack. I wanted to tell the people uh, they can find your channel. It's uh, well, they can either search your name or your channel is Tennis and Beyond. I've I've really been enjoying it, so I want to say kudos. Uh, I was a little worried when you were leaving the New York Times. I was like, oh, are we are we going to get you know your writing? But um, is it what is it? Maybe once a week, two times a week? Do you have a, a cadence that you're trying to stick to on your Substack? Well, I think during the majors, um, at least for now, I'm, I'm in the middle of this book process, like I said, so I don't have, I can't devote as much time as I hope to devote to it, you know, down the road for sure, especially in 2024. But yeah, I definitely want to write, write once a week if I can. And during the majors a bit more, I was writing maybe three or four times a week during the French Open. But I, I, mean, I know myself and I, I imagine you know how it works too. Once you get into a book and a manuscript, you really kind of got to dive into it to do it right. And so I'm, I'm going to be happy to have my my Substack break during each week, but I, I can't I can't go full time on it, uh, at least not for a, a little while until I get through this uh, this big project. But I'm excited about it. It's yeah. been fun, and you know I I get the way I operate is the way people a lot of journalists do. I mean, you always sort of feel like as long as you have ideas and things come to you, and you're excited about what you're doing. And then honestly, you know, I really have never run out of ideas about tennis, and I'm always seeing things I want to write about or address. Don't get to get to all of them, but the Substack's going to think give me a chance to kind of soothe the withdrawal pains from daily journalism and, and hopefully build it into something really cool with a nice community of people. And, and we're off to a really good start. So it's, it's been a lot of fun so far. So th this question is just occurring to me. I, I build out for folks listening. I build out, I, I try to build out a big agenda and, you know, I share it with you just to make sure everything looks good. And this is not on the agenda, but it just occurs to me as I'm listening to you talk, you've been in tennis, gosh, several decades now and as somebody such as myself who we've been in in and around the world of golf for I, I mean it's close to 10 years with the podcast which is hard to imagine but really full-time about five six years now where do you find yourself drawing inspiration or ideas with regards to tennis is that something you've ever struggled with do you, do you have I guess I'm I'm curious is there is there anything you do or people you talk to or or anything that kind of helps give you ideas get you into the mood to explore something cuz that's that's something I 
it's weird in golf. It's like sometimes they just come to me and it's like, oh my gosh, I'd really love to write about this or we have to do a podcast about that. And then sometimes throughout the year, it's like, oh my God, what are we going to talk about? Like, oh, I can't think of any new angles here. I, I'm just curious that relationship uh, with tennis that, that you kind of have. That's a great question. I mean, a great subject, really. I mean, where you get your ideas from, where they, where they come from. I'd say for me, you know, just off the top of my head, I would say there are probably a couple of major things there. You know, one is I've, Throughout my career, you know, it's been almost 40 years of doing this and over 30 with the New York Times and International Herald Tribune, which was its sister paper in Paris. And, um, you know, I always did a, a variety of sports and I did a, you know, a number of sports like sailing, you know, America's Cups and this offshore race called the Vendee Globe and the Volvo Ocean Race sailing. I did a lot of, a lot of golf, did a lot of um, Olympic sports, track and field, things like that. But I always had tennis as kind of the core thing that I really felt I had the biggest connection with as a writer and on a personal level as well. So I never wanted to do too much of it because I felt like in a way, if I did too much, I might kind of, you know, kill the joy in a little way. So I always Mm -hmm. tried to have a a broad sort of perspective, but I always found that when I went away from tennis for a little while, I went to these other sports or, or even sort of different parts of, of, of our lives, you know, beyond sports or beyond the the job. A lot of really good ideas came out of that because I had it always kind of in the back of my head spinning, you know, the, uh, the tennis universe, so often I got a lot of ideas from talking to, believe it or not, you know, cross-country skiers or, you know, yeah. the Open Championship, you know, walking walk the course and going, oh, well, how does that relate to tennis? So there's definitely some ideas have come from that. And, and I think the variety has kept me fresh all these years. And the other thing is, like golf, tennis is such a great, you know, tradition and, uh, and connective sport through generations. And so a lot of the guys I started covering when I was in my 20s, when I came on the circuit, you know, they're now the... You know, the venerable commentators, you know, the, the Jim Couriers and people like that, or the veteran coaches, or guys have been through all kinds of problems and iterations, like Boris Becker, who's a fascinating character, but obviously had his highs and his lows. So I have all those people that I'm kind of still connected with in some way from my memory bank. And then you see how these next generations come along and they interact with them and how they compare. And so when I go watch a tournament, my head is sort of where I am, for sure, watching the match at hand, but I'm also flashing back a lot. I guess that only comes from covering a sport or following a sport for a long time, having a lot of conversations over many decades. And I think a lot of ideas come from those, those connections that, that you've made both in your head and, and in, you know, in the real world through the years. And I think that's part of the reason why it's been such a rich experience because you know, tennis, much like golf, it goes back to the same places uh, you know, quite a lot. And you get a chance to kind of tell the story through the years um, in these same venues, but the venues shift. Uh, throughout the season. So it keeps it fresh in that way too. Well, I can say interviews such as this, when I get to talk to you about tennis and kind of dip into things outside of golf, that that certainly is helpful for me. So again, appreciate it. Uh, I didn't mention you are on Twitter. It's at Christoph Clary. Uh, and Clary is C-L-A-R-E-Y for anybody looking for a great tennis twitter follow uh you said you're back from france you were you were covering the the french open which i do want to ask you about do you have plans to go over will you cover wimbledon in person will you go over to london i'm gonna write about it but at this point i mean i'm i'm accredited but i don't think i'm gonna be able to make it i think i've got to really focus on the book and get myself in a rhythm much as i would love to go and i haven't missed it in quite a long time i just feel like to go over there and spend the three weeks at this stage with the book you know needing to be really getting into high gear it's just the timing's just wrong but i'll i will definitely be back and i'll be following and i've got some ideas of things i want to write about that relate to the tournament so i'll I'll do that uh, on my sub stack for sure 
Well, I think we can certainly touch on the French Open, but where I want to start is given that we're just about halfway through 2023, we're uh, halfway through the Grand Slam calendar. Of course, Wimbledon starts uh, Monday, July 3rd. What, in your opinion, I, I picked the number three, but if it's less than that or if it's more than that, what, what are some of the most important things to happen in the world of professional tennis thus far in 2023, in your opinion? You know, Randy, I would say, you know, the first thing I would say really, you know, just in, in terms of a historical perspective, and that's because it relates to what I'm doing, but I mean, you know, Rafa Nadal, you know, one of the greatest players in, in tennis history, one of the greatest athletes of this era, you know, basically hurting himself again, going down in Australia, playing against Mackie McDonald, an American player, and not being able to play again this season, and maybe not won't be able to play at all in the future. So that's certainly, in, the, in terms of the importance of, of Nadal in the sport of tennis, the fact that he's on the shelf and maybe his career really in danger now, that's certainly the you know, very, very important thing that's happened. And then I'd say a couple things about going back. Um, one, Novak Djokovic going back to Australia after what mm-hmm. happened in, in 2022 with the, uh, you know, the controversy of over his, you know, failure to get vaccinated for the COVID and, and that world we were living in at that time and him ending up getting deported from Australia as the number one player in the world in a, a multiple, right. multiple champion down there. It was a huge global story, way beyond tennis. And then he goes yeah. back this year, you know, not really, wasn't in the in the grandest form at the end of last year. And he ends up, you know, again, fighting a little bit through injury and playing great tennis and winning. So that, you can't, you can't go past that. And that was just to see the whole change in one year's time from Melbourne in 2022 in January to Melbourne in 2023. And the way he slotted back in there and, and kind of overcame all that, all those negative vibrations and still prevailed. And then I think, you know, it's we'll see how it all plays out. But the WTA Women's Tennis Tour you know, going back to China, they made a stand. Uh, you know, last year, end of 2021, about Peng Shui, the Chinese player who came out on social media and made some allegations about sexual abuse about a senior Chinese party official. The tour really came out strong and and, and backed Peng and and demanded some things that were never going to happen, honestly, in China. You know, a transparent investigation into this. Uh, open dialogue with Pong, you know, for the WTA. None of that stuff ever happened. The Chinese sports world was kind of shut down anyway during that period. So it was more a symbolic gesture, but it was still a powerful gesture. And then basically, you know, a couple months ago, the WTA backed off that stand. I think their president, Steve Simon, would have been happy to keep going with that. I think he felt strongly about it, but the overall sport and, and the governing body felt like it was it was time to step back from that. And honestly, in retrospect, it was probably unrealistic to expect any of their demands to be met. And so it was kind of a, a nod to the power of China and, and sort of a real politic there. And that certainly, you know, the WTA having to back down from that stand uh, was painful, I think, and, and you know, very revealing. And the last thing quickly I'd say is, you know, we're going, this is more inside tennis, but it is, it is significant. This is, this year, this season is the first time we're seeing on a really wide scale Sort of the regular tour events going to this 12-day, almost two-week format happened in um, you know Madrid on clay and Rome in clay before the French Open. It already happened before many years from Indian Wells and Miami. But generally, the two weeks has been associated with the Grand Slam tournaments, you know, the four pillars of the game. And you're seeing more and more now the tours, men's and women's, are going to start going into that sort of two-week format for a lot of their big events. It's going to really accelerate over the next couple of years. And what is that going to mean? You know, We'll see how that, how that applies to... You know, the prestige of the slams down the road, whether the similar formats are going to make it seem all uh, much more on an equal level. But it's it's a big move, and, it, and it's not going to slow down. It's only going to accelerate. 
Th- those are fantastic. Uh, if I may, l- let me just ask a couple follow-ups. The the Rafa injury situation. Do you have a read on that? I I know you're certainly not ready to say that the career's over, but in kind of your best guess, and I know you're not a doctor. None of us are doctors, but I guess realistically, what do you expect the next year uh, or two for Rafa to look like? Do Do you think he can get back to high level professional tennis? You know, honestly, on the injury. What we know is what he's told us, and and clearly the, the timeline that they initially gave us, which generally those timelines are, are pretty conservative. When he hurt himself in Australia, it's the psoas muscle uh, in the hip area, and um, there was a tear there. And I think he had some minor issues with that in the past, but nothing that serious. But he's had so many injuries over the years and so many parts of his body. So I think it's the cumulative effect that really comes into play here, and, and the age. He just turned 37. But I, you know, I think initially we're thinking he'd be back by the French Open, no problem. Didn't turn out that way, and there's been a lot of scenes of him of him training down at his academy in Mallorca and just looking really overwrought by the fact that his body's just not responding. So is that going to be a, a thing he's not going to be able to solve and at this stage of his career after all the you know the miles on the odometer, um, or is he going to be able to to find a way one more time uh, to get back on the court and and be competitive? Honestly, you know, logically speaking, I think the odds are against it. But knowing Nadal and the way that competitive heart beats within him and how much he's just hardwired to to push himself through what other people would just define as intolerable suffering, to him he views it as a challenge. <laughs> so I, I, I got to kind of – the odds, I think, are don't apply. I think you have to say, yeah, he'll, he'll find a way to get back. Is he going to win more majors? Odds are really against that. But, you know, again, mm-hmm. it, you put him on clay with, with a healthy hip or feeling better, you cannot count him out um, until – and basically, he decides to uh, to really call it a day himself. So, if he goes back on tour, it's because he feels he has a chance to win. I think, and um, he's such a phenomenal competitor and athlete that that I just can't count him out. But it, it's, yeah. it's a tough one, and also be tough because he's, mentally he's been through so much, you know, in the last five to six years with consistent, constant injuries. He's fought him throughout his career, always come back. Now he's a family man, got a young son. I was just down in Mallorca not long ago. Life's pretty good down there. Um, but that doesn't. That's not going to stop Rafa. Life's been pretty good in Mallorca from the beginning, and he's always always come back and and fought. So it's hard to imagine him going out at a news conference, as he said himself. And you mentioned Novak, uh, his return to Australia. He he won the Australian Open. He won the French Open. Uh, Novak is thirty six years old. I mean, it's unbelievable in my opinion. You know, I think it's one of the most consistently underrated sports stories uh, just what he has been able to do we were robbed a little bit of that Novak Alcaraz clash of of the Titans because of Alcaraz's cramping but specifically on Novak I mean does does anything of what he's doing surprise you and and how good of a look does he have at at a a calendar grand slam this year yeah I mean you mentioned and we talked about uh, our discussion today, you talked about the things that I was looking at going forward, you know, in tennis in the coming months of the year. And that certainly is the <laughs> yeah. no- Novak Djokovic completing the Grand Slam. I don't go with, I'm not a big calendar year slam guy. I believe there is one Grand Slam and that is winning all four in the same calendar year. That's the way I see it. It's gotcha. the same challenge for me doing it across years, even though it's very impressive. So that, you know, the Grand Slam hasn't been done on the men's side since Rod Laver and singles in 1969 and Novak some people might remember was only a couple, one match away from it. The U.S. Open final two years ago lost to Daniel Medvedev 
in a match when Djokovic kind of got overcome by the import of it all, I think, and didn't play his best tennis and lost in straight sets. But, you know, he he is a, a guy who has the long view in mind. He plays for history. Unlike Nadal and Federer, he has openly embraced that concept for many years now, and it's what one of the things that really drives him. And you better believe that he knows that's possible, and he also knows that the odds of it happening again or getting this close again are you know, honestly pretty slim. He saw how good Carlos Alcaraz is and is going to be at the French Open and on clay this season. So he knows his moment is now, and he has proven himself to be the ultimate. I mean, I always thought Nadal was the ultimate competitor week-to-week, match-to-match, point-to-point. But I think Djokovic has become the ultimate competitor in the majors now. He's able to really peak for those and find a way to get his best tennis out and use all his skills and his ability to transform himself into a different kind of player based on the challenge of the moment. And he uses that best-of-five set format, which now only exists in the Grand Slam tournaments, to his advantage because he he can unlock a match, and he is incredibly fit at the age that he is, um, just like you said, turned 36. But I think that's across all sports, right? We're seeing it, everything from you know golf with Phil Mickelson winning a major so deep into his career, and, and you're seeing it in so many different sports. So it shouldn't be shocking that it's happened in tennis. But I think these guys, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, have certainly contributed to the, you know, the body of work that make – older athletes believe anything's possible we we were so conditioned i we as uh, you know speaking as a tennis fan the idea of the big three with federer nadal and djokovic and then even adding a murray in there you know a, a, a big four if you will from for certainly several years but now with with federer's retirement nadal real injury concerns how should people think of the men's game? Would you kind of put Djokovic in in a class of his own with Alcaraz slightly below him? Would you put Alcaraz and Djokovic 1A, 1B with the rest of the tennis world trailing those guys? I'm curious how how you think about the, the top end of men's tennis right now. Well, first of all, Randy, I think it's a great time in men's tennis. I mean, I love, as I was talking to you before, I feel like you get those generational intersections. It's always great in sports and great in tennis. And right now, it's a classic one. I mean, even though that semifinal at the French Open turned into a bit of a dud because of Alcaraz's cramps and early in that third set, it was it was primed to be a great match. It was a set of piece. The quality of the rallies and the athleticism was off the charts. I thought um, terrific stuff. So I think the game's really poised in a great spot as long as Djokovic remains a big factor. And for me, it's not 1A and 1B. It's it's 1. Djokovic is number 1, even though he's not number 1 in the rankings. I mean, you can't win the Aussie Open and the French Open the way that yeah. he did and have the legacy that he has and just broke the <laughs> men's Grand Slam singles record and not be not number 1 by yourself I mean, in terms of yeah, where you true. stand. So he is yeah. through that. But it's a nice little group after him, for sure. I mean, uh, I'm going to put Rafa aside for now because he's not part of the mix. Um, but for sure, I think the... Uh, the Alcaraz factor um, and some of these younger guys that are also with him, they're terrific tennis players. They're very, very watchable, especially Carlos Alcaraz is really, really a, a telegenic spectacle to see him play, as I'm sure you'd agree from having watched mm-hmm. him. It's kind of all action, acrobatic, uh, very animated player, doesn't keep it all within. He's very external with his emotions and his enthusiasm. So it's great to see. Um, so I personally think as long as Alcaraz stays healthy and Djokovic stays motivated and on target, I mean, game's in a great spot. Uh, yeah. We'll see how how those guys from below rise up. Right now, you've got really only, I mean, Dominic Team won the U.S. Open during the pandemic period, but he has fallen off the charts because of a wrist injury and confidence problems. And, um, you know, Alcaraz is the only young guy who's who's won a major who's you know, in the mix right now. But 
there will be others, and um, Alcaraz has a chance, in my view, to be a you know a great, great talent who can stretch across the game for for a decade or more. The U.S. Open match last fall with Alcaraz and Sinner. I, I know I'm not saying anything new here, but that that was the best tennis match I've ever watched. Uh, those two. And wow, that's quite a statement. Well, I don't have the depth of knowledge, certainly that that you do. But from from my standpoint, I saw all the you know the the Federer and Nadal, and you know, but just the 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 atmosphere, the shot making, the athleticism. I I don't I don't think I could put anything above it. Um, but I was going to kind of use that to segue. You you said that I was looking for things that you're most excited about the rest of the calendar year. I mean, for me, it's it's a true rematch, Alcaraz, Djokovic. Whether we get it at Wimbledon or at the U.S. Open, uh, that would be high on my wish list. I'm curious, though, what what are things that you're most interested here uh, in the back half of 2023? You know, it's not all it's not all excitement. It's just I'm also just fascinated and interested. I mean, it's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle. But you know, Simona Halep, one of the you know great modern women's tennis champions, Wimbledon champ, uh, French Open champ been number one, you know, tested positive for banned substance and is, is, you know, serving a ban right now and is contesting it. And Halep is just, was in the middle of kind of a comeback when all this happened and she's kind of disappeared. But I think that's going to resurface as an issue as a, as a sport adjudicates that. I'm really interested to see uh, Venus Williams at 43, talking about <laughs> older players. Uh, you know, yeah. Venus is a, as a part-time player totally now, but has come back for the grass and, Played some nice, uh, nice tennis, nice tennis uh, last week on the grass in Britain, in, Britain, in a lead-up tournament, and um, is somebody who uh, isn't going to win Wimbledon at this stage, but could certainly be a factor for in the first week and, and have a nice little run. And Venus has not been as great a champion as her sister Serena. It's in terms of the numbers. You, can, you have to say that at this point clearly, but has been a huge factor in women's tennis and, and women's sports. So how she ends up saying goodbye to the game or not, uh, that certainly is of interest to me. The Nadal situation is, you know, how his end game plays out and whether he's able to come back at the end of the season and play some more. But I think on the, you know, the people who are, you know, part of the day-to-day to the tour, I think the women's side is interesting because what's really been lacking in women's tennis for such a long time, surprisingly, are consistent rivalries. When you think about it, I mean, really the last great consistent surpassing rivalry in women's tennis was probably Everett and Navratilova, or you can say Steffi Graf and Monica Seles, even though that ended up becoming a sadly a shortened rivalry because of the stabbing of Seles in 1993. We're talking about 30 years ago. There has not been a consistent, great, must-watch women's rivalry really since then, in my opinion. People might argue that Venus and Serena were that for a while, but it never felt that way to me. And yeah, Justine Hennen against uh, of Belgium against against Serena for a while, but it just hasn't happened consistently across a long, long period of time, like the Big Three produced uh, over more than a decade. And that women's tennis really, I think, would benefit greatly from that. And what we're seeing are the kind of the green shoots of stuff like that happening now with Iga Swiatek, number one world number one in the world from Poland, is really establishing herself as a young player. Elena Rybakina from Kazakhstan, born in Russia, won Wimbledon last year. And then Arina Sabalenka, who's from Belarus, big power player, reminiscent for me in some ways of Serena and the way she plays. 
she'd been a big, big server of the first serve, has overcome the yips on her second serve. And those three women have kind of been bouncing off each other so far this year and playing some great matches. There have been some unfortunate little dips in health here for Rybakina and Sabalenka lately, but I, I feel like those three have set themselves apart. And they played some great, great matches this year. The Australian Open final between um, Rybakina and Sabalenka was a terrific, terrific tennis match. Probably the most consistently hard-hitting women's tennis match I've seen. Uh, and it, it wasn't just errors. It was a lot of winners and spectacular stuff. So that may not have reached the general audience around the world yet or the American general sports fan, but it, it has been a really, really good to watch and very promising because those are all relatively young players. They all have, all have good teams, good systems in place, and I think they have a chance to have some staying power. And then hopefully other players will integrate that as well. But, you know, the women's tour really needs, you know, slam to slam, big tournament to big tournament, rivalries that become appointment viewing and uh, we'll see but I, i'm hopeful about that but i want to watch that and the last thing i'd mention not to ramble on here is um you know, obviously at the french open if you follow that at all you you sort of saw how the ukraine war and the russia belarus dynamic really you know came to the fore again and again with uh, you know, prominent ukrainian women's players like marta kostchuk and and svitolina coming back from maternity leave and really emotionally kind of commandeering the tournament with that with their performances and sort of the way that they played off the Belarusian and Russian players like Sabalenka. That's not going to go away. Uh, this war is going to continue. Um, the Ukrainian women's players in particular are really committed to, uh, to keeping the issue on the forefront, and they are not going to reach out to the Russian and Belarusian players who are also very prominent on tour. So that issue is going to remain a, a big factor, and Wimbledon for those who don't remember, you know, banned the Russians and Belarusians last year altogether. They were the only tournament of any consequence to do that in tennis. Ended up being an outlier and having to back down from that. So everybody's able to play now. But I, the issue remains and, and will continue to create, I think, storylines and tension going forward. All these geopolitical storylines in in tennis. Certainly, we've we've we have our fair share in golf with uh, with the Saudi Arabia potential merger uh, with <laughs> Piff. It's we we joke all the time. It's like, man, I we can talk golf, but when we start getting into these, you know, geopolitical and sports washing, and it's like, oh, I quickly am out of my depth. So. I know, I, I know you guys face similar things on, on the tennis side. Um, in terms of Saudi Arabia and tennis, I have no doubt that it will become a factor in some way or another. It already is in kind of a low-level manner. They've had some tournaments there, exhibitions, big money. There's been discussion about taking the WTA finals there. Even last year it was discussed, which is kind of the big year-end championships. Ultimately, the women's tour backed away from that because of the optics, I think, and even though the money would have been great, I think they felt like it just wasn't what they wanted to project with the status of women in, in Saudi Arabia and the, what they're trying to project as a tour. But, you know, as more and more of the sports world at large uh, embraces the Saudi Arabian uh, economics and and playing there and competing there, looking at you know players like soccer star Karim Benzema and, and obviously um, many golf tournaments have been played in Saudi Arabia already. So it's... Uh, yeah. I don't think tennis is going to stay on the sidelines for much longer with that. I think we'll see uh, some smaller ATP events, or at least a smaller ATP event, maybe the next-gen finals, which is reserved for the young players at the end of the year, end up in Saudi Arabia. But there will be more, and you know, obviously it depends on how the political situation plays out there and and whether the you know the, uh, the country is able to project its, its message of trying to be more integrated in the global economy and 
and all that. But ultimately, you know, sadly, I think big money talks loudly, and they have lots of big money, and they're able to uh, to project it. But th- to be to be fair, in a way, this issue in tennis with the Gulf states goes back quite a long way. I mean, they've been playing the event in Doha since the early 1990s um, in tennis, and uh, that was considered a real outlier when it happened. And there were concerns about the Qatari politics at the time and how they how they approach women's rights. And at the time, there were a lot of restrictions more than there are now on, on women in that area of the world. And so there, were, there was definitely discussion even then, 30 years ago. So this is just another chapter in that long story. Well, I I, I was going to ask you at some point about the, the Saudi stuff in tennis, uh, but I think I think that covers it sufficiently. So we, we can concentrate on, on the players and on the game. Uh, of course, I said Wimbledon getting started. I'm going to ask you to prognosticate, Christopher. I, I have no illusions that you are a master prognosticator. I just love. I, I think it's a good vehicle for discussion for some individual players, and and it's a fun exercise. So, of course, no pressure if you're right or wrong. Um, but I thought it'd be fun to go through. Uh, we'll start with the men, and and we'll do the same exercise for the women. I uh, would love to ask you about some individual men, and um, let's put the parameters on if you think the individual will win a major, uh, will win a slam in the next five years. So we'll say maybe till through the end of, uh, what would that be, 2028. And the guy I want to start with, he's gotten close. He's been in some finals. I can't quite figure out if he's ever going to get over the top, so I'm curious what you think about Tsitsipas. Oh, I'm not sure how much how much detail you want on each of these calls, but I mean, I would say um, <laughs> as I, much as you I am want. I'm a much better analyst of of what just happened than I am about what's going to be happening. <laughs> I've had a couple couple you know home runs over the years, but a lot more uh, strikeouts. But basically, I would say, in my view, if I had to put my hand on the fire, I would say no. Even though he's mm-hmm. been so close, I just think maybe he's going to be a little bit of a wrong era guy uh, and this younger generation I think is better and more complete and has shown more mental strength in the big matches so far and even though I think many would say Sitsipas is going to win at least one in his career I'm, I'm going to say no I like it I like it uh, and I don't disagree next guy he was out for a significant time with injury tons of talent uh, got back to the semifinals in Paris that's Alexander Zverev. I'm, I'm really curious. He's 26 years old now, I believe. Uh, really curious what you think. He, he was a guy that was talked about as like the next guy to win a slam outside of the Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, big three. Uh, the injury certainly cooled things, and now we have younger guys such as Alcaraz. So I, I'm, I'm really curious where you think Zverev fits over the next five years. This is kind of risky on my part, but I'm going to say yes. I think I think he will. He'll find a way to win one. I think he's huge talent. Obviously, had a lot of issues off the court with some allegations that were investigated by the ATP Tour of you know some uh, some abuse, and they were basically ruled out by the tour in terms of the investigation that was done. There were never any criminal charges filed, but that plus some issues he's had with his finances and things like that have, have weighed heavily on him. So I think um, I think basically he has not performed to his level, his potential. And, and when you saw him play, when he when he tore the ligaments in his ankle against Nadal in the semis of the French Open last year, he was playing big time tennis. And he had won the ATP Finals a couple times by then, which is the big indoor event at the end of the year on the ATP Tour, which the players take very seriously. And usually 
you know, succeeding in that. Sits of Pass has also won that. But succeeding in that is, is no fluke, and uh, it's only reserved for the top eight guys in the in the rankings at the end of the year. I just think Zverev's too good and seems too motivated again not to get there at least once. And he's a multi-surface threat. Hasn't played his best on grass yet at Wimbledon, but I think he could play very well there. He has a huge, huge serve. He moves very well for his size, as six foot six. And I, you know, he, I think he was raised to be a champion. And I, I think, I think at one point or another, he'll 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 get there. Even though he had his chance at the U.S. Open against uh, Dominic Team and and that crazy match of five sets couldn't pull it off. But I, I think he will once. Again, I think I agree with you. So uh, two, two, two for two. Not not much to add on my part. Uh, the next guy I wanted to ask was Casper Ruud. He's been a three-time finalist the last two years at the French Open and last year's U.S. Open. I'm curious what you think because to, to my eye, he, he seems maybe a lot like Tsitsipas where certainly a very, very good tennis player. But, man, if he's running into a Djokovic or an Alcaraz, I, my untrained eye is like, I just don't see how he has enough game to overcome a true world-class player like that. But uh, curious what your thoughts are. First of all, let me say that Casper Ruud's just a great guy, and, and, he, and he's the kind of guy you cheer for once, once you get to know him a little bit and, and once you watch him week to week and the way he conducts himself. And I think he's a guy who's more and more coming out of his shell, and he has a lot of personality once you get to see him, too. He has, uh, takes his time kind of revealing that, but I've I really enjoyed uh, my contacts with him. And I, I think he is uh, maybe underrated in a sense that even though he's had great results re- recently, I mean, the guy really gets rotation on the ball with the forehand and the backhand. Big, big hitter. Um, he looks really clean and smooth sometimes. You don't always, you don't always sense that until you're on the court uh, side and, and seeing it up close. And, you know, a U.S. Open final and a French Open final um, and, you know, two two French Open finals now, basically, with uh, the two greatest players of the era at this point active, Nadal and Djokovic as the opposition. Not easy to overcome that. So I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say he'll win one. I think it'll come on clay at the French once Nadal's gone for good and Djokovic is phased out. And I think maybe it'll be a fairer fight when he's playing against guys that are closer to his generation. But he has great clay court skills. He has a... Great work ethic, um, good team in place with his father, and and uh, seemed like a good dynamic all around there. And he seems to be, you know, he's had some dips this season, but he's on a good overall career trajectory. So I think maybe when the, the bar gets a little bit lower, even though I think Alcaraz is going to be so tough to beat on the clay, I think maybe Rude gets one. I'm, I'm rooting for him, and he's a guy I don't I, I don't think I would have said that necessarily not that I didn't like him but just kind of neutral on the guy but I think through the U.S. Open last year and following up in in Paris this year and the more I've read and 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 heard people such as yourself talk about you know he's he's just a nice guy great guy I do find myself rooting for him so certainly certainly hope you're right and he can snag one here Randy, that means you disagree with me. I can tell already. You're, 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 you're voting no on Casper. I can feel. Well, that. you you bring a good point about the clay. I, I do think that's that's maybe the tournament. If if Alcaraz suffers uh, an upset one of these next few years, it, it could certainly open things up for him. The next guy has won a uh, has won a slam, so he's a bit different in that regard. But Daniil Medvedev, curious if he's maybe on a bit of a downward trajectory right now he's somebody that's yeah i just feel like we haven't heard a lot 
about him. I'm, I'm curious what kind of form he's in and, and his prospects over the next uh, several years, in your opinion. Too great a hardcore player to say no to him. It's It's got to be a yes. Um, I just think he's on hard courts, he's just money. Um, plays so well. He's won a bunch of titles already this year. Uh, even won a clay court title, even though he, he kind of went went fizzle at the French Open. But um, he... He's uh, he's on an upward trajectory, I think, overall right now again after maybe having a hard time for for a few months there uh, and not having a second half of 2022 that was you know I think worthy of his talent. But he's he's just too good a serve, too good a ball striker, too unconventional a game that creates too many problems for guys not not to win another major on a hard court. I think at some point. So I, 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 I yeah. think that's 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 a pretty strong yes in my mind. Yeah. And it shows my bias, you know. I've I've kind of weighing heavily his his slam performances, but yes, he he has won titles this year. I, I, probably not fair to suggest his overall game is on a downward trajectory. And another guy I love to watch. I, I think he's a great quote. I think he's a very interesting person, which I'm always I, I find myself gravitating to those types. So certainly somebody that I find myself rooting for. Uh, the next guy, the, the the man known as FAA, the Canadian Felix <laughs> Auger-Aliassime. I, I think I'm more curious in asking this question just what his top-end talent level is and, and if he is worthy of kind of being discussed as a potential major champion or if he's ever, always going to kind of slot in as that next best group. You know, he's a tough one because you have seen flashes uh, of him at the majors – you know, against Nadal at the French Open last year, against uh, Medvedev at the Australian Open last year. Uh, he's been at Wimbledon quarterfinals. He has a huge, huge serve. He's played, I think, probably his consistently best tennis indoors, honestly, when that serve can be at its ultimate without any natural factors to influence it. But it's a massive weapon. And he's a great um, sort of athlete in terms of his ability to sort of uh, – be powerful and, and explode into the ball. His game has always seemed a little bit mechanical to me, and maybe that's not fair to him, but that's, that's the way it comes across. I, I don't see that sort of spontaneous genius that you see in a lot of great tennis players, and I think maybe that, that could hold him back on grass, even though he seems to have a lot of the tools. You know, I would kind of regrettably say no. I don't see him winning a major, but I, I, I certainly could be wrong on this, and I would welcome being wrong. I think he's a great character for the game. He's a classy guy, uh, Love the way he cuts across cultures with his French and English and, um, you know, being from Canada, conducts himself so well. And I think he's a guy who's a hard worker who's going to get the most out of his game in a lot of ways. I just, something tells me there's a little bit of a brittleness there in the technique and the way he produces it under pressure and the, um, and just the overall, the overall game. And I just think they're going to be guys that are going to be able to handle him at the highest level, um, who don't have those whole, don't have those, uh, restrictions so yeah i have I, to go with, with a very qualified no I, I totally agree with your your use of the word mechanical i think that's such a, a spot-on way to describe kind of what i sense when i watch him play and mm. yeah it's 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 very pejorative but it, it it does kind of strike me as the most being able to describe kind of that that apprehension in his game that that i see so um love that phrasing you know, I, I would. It is, in a sense, it's it's not a compliment. But what I would say about it is that it is somebody who has been a real student of the game and mm-hmm. tried to do everything the right way, and really learn the game and go at it. 
there's just a little element of spontaneity that's missing there. And the, and the, I feel like and I feel like he's hitting the shots. And I and this could be totally wrong. I feel like when I watch him, that he's thinking about hitting the shots instead of playing. And that's that never works at the highest level. They're just that that just holds you back. And maybe and he the, breaks maybe he yeah. breaks through that, and maybe he finds a way to get beyond that because. Let me tell you, if there was a slam indoors, <laughs> I would have to go with with him as a as a real candidate because of that that serve is a monster, and he can he can bring it on the forehand side too for sure. It's so funny because that's um, there's such a crossover to that phenomenon to golf. You know, I, I think both men, women, yeah, you, you encounter people that's like, man, they he or she has every shot. We see them hit every shot. They have success, but there's just something about being in those those, those big-time spots and just the need sometimes to have a bit of creativity, a bit of artistry that for whatever reason, when you watch somebody, you just sense a lack of that spontaneity and, and artistry. I, I don't know. It's, it's one of the – honestly – you could apply it to kind of any sport, and it's it's one of my most. I, I just think it's a fascinating phenomenon, right? And, and it's totally subjective, right? It's it's <laughs> we're we're just two people giving our opinion, but but I do think it makes for a fascinating conversation and and something to think about in, in terms of like that that cross section between mechanically sound and proper technique combined with that artistry and creativity uh, mm. when you need it. I, I, I do yeah. think that's where that's, that's kind of the pinnacle of sport, I guess, in my opinion, for any athlete is being able to combine those two things. Yeah. I mean, it's, you hear about the flow state a lot. Um, I think that that applies to tennis, you know, very much so all the harder to maintain in tennis, much like golf, because you have these long breaks before you have to yeah. perform, right? 20 seconds, 25 seconds between points, uh, interesting rhythm to the, to the activity. And golf, obviously, you have even more between shots. So it's that's the challenge, is yeah. maintaining that state across a, a repetitive thing with, with these big breaks to think too much. Yep. All right, the next, the next it, it's not an individual, it's a bucket. I'm going to say any American man winning a major in the next five years. <laughs> well, that makes it easier. I'm going to go with, I'm going to say yes to that. Wow, I, okay. I feel like, I feel like uh, there's enough talent there on the men's side um, they maybe not be the guys who are at the moment front and center, but there's enough talent there. And, you know, I, I don't want to hype him up too much because I don't feel it's fair to the other guys who've achieved more at this stage. But I do think Sebastian Corda uh, has a chance to be a Grand Slam champion. And I think someone like Taylor Fritz could pull it off too, or Francis Tiafoe if everything goes well. But, uh, I mean, Corda is the one to watch for me, but, you know, it doesn't mean that the other guys couldn't pull it off at a, at a given moment. Um, but I, I'm really curious to watch what what Cora is going to be able to do over the next couple of seasons. Even though he's appeared at times to have limitations against the best of the young generation like Alcaraz, but he's a he's a good good tennis player for sure. Fascinating to juxtapose him and his quest for a Grand Slam title uh, with his sister in golf, yeah. Nelly, who's 24. She has won one but has really has a ton of weight on her shoulders as kind of the next big American uh, female golfer. And, you know, I, I think myself included sometimes I'm like, man, I, I think she I, I catch myself saying, like, should, should she have won more than one? major championship by now and I, I i just find it fascinating that we might 
get to that same spot someday with her brother and just how they go about that as a family and you know honestly how hopefully they can rely on each other Nellie and and Sebastian that's that's a very interesting family and and certainly one to keep an eye on over these next several years and Randy just curious about how does the golf world do you think view the Olympic gold medal that she won that's a great question I Honestly, I think in the circles that I operate in, it's sometimes overlooked. And I don't necessarily think it should be, but I do think it's, for whatever reason, it's it's discounted a little bit when viewed in conjunction with major championships. Mm-hmm. But that is a good point. Nelly has won an Olympic gold medal. Yeah, that's... Yeah, the golf, it just hasn't quite grabbed that significance that I think a lot of people were hoping for and, and maybe expecting. Mm. You're right, though. It's an amazing, amazing family story, and and uh, it could get more amazing. So we'll yeah. see how, how, how it plays out. And we'll see how he does. How is he with the media? How is Sebastian? Because Nelly, not that she's bad with the media, but I think one thing that we've all kind of are starting to learn is I, I think Team Corda, quote-unquote Team Corda, a little closed off and and not really eager to make her available and it, it's a little tougher to get access to Nelly. I'm I'm curious if Sebastian is the same way. Early days, uh, I've only interviewed him in group settings. I haven't talked to him one on one, but seemed like like a nice guy. Definitely has a nice demeanor about him. Um, I don't think he's a natural extrovert, so he's definitely not a like a Francis TFO type of personality. So we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. But right now, there hasn't been a. He was off the tour for a couple of months after the Australian Open when he got to the quarterfinals and looked like he might even have a chance to win. He hurt his wrist there, and looked, looked like he was ready to pop to me at a high level. He almost beat Djokovic in a warm-up tournament in Australia. Just such a great ball striker. I mean, from both sides, very smooth, can generate easy power, very comfortable at the net as well. But as far as his off off court stuff, I think it's too early to judge yet because he hasn't been. You know, kind of consistently in the focus uh, week to week, probably like Nelly has um, already. So it'll, it'll be, if yeah. he does get to that stage, I imagine there will be, you know, like everything in big time tennis, there tends to be a lot of restrictions put in place these days uh, with the top, top players. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the excess. The last two names I want to ask you about on the men's side are two guys that I definitely think will win Grand Slams in the next five years at some point. That's Yannick Sinner and, and Holger Rune. I'm curious, though, one, I guess, if you agree, and then two, I hate to kind of try to make a a big three, a young big three, because it's not fair to them, and quite frankly, it's not fair to Nadal and Federer and and Djokovic either, but I do think it kind of helps frame the tennis landscape, but maybe a better way to ask it, Christopher, is in in your opinion, along with Alcaraz, are, are Sinner and Rune the two best, youngest guys out on tour right now or is that not the case well it depends how you define young first of all i mean um i mean tennis tends to talk about generations being different when they're about four or five years apart um it's a funny thing isn't it yeah i don't don't think golf goes quite that tight on the on the generation they don't no they don't tennis tends to do that and i don't think that's really necessarily the best way to see it because you have a very still a young player like casper root is as i said been in two major finals already and uh, three major finals, sorry. Um, and Holger Rune and Yannick Center haven't been in any. So, and Casper's not that much older than those guys. So it's it's a little. And I do appreciate your sensitivity to kind of reframing the big three right away. I don't, I don't think that's fair to the big three or or fair to these young guys. And honestly, I mean, 
Daniel Medvedev is in his mid to late 20s, and he's he is as much a factor as, as those guys, and a, and probably a bigger factor than Rune and and Center at the moment. So you you can't just reduce the next generation to those young guys. It's it's kind of anybody from age 30 on down, and there are a bunch of guys that okay. have been in that in that, in that picture. And I do think Zverev will at some point reemerge as well, and he's kind of in Medvedev's uh, uh, age group there too. But yeah, of the youngest guys on on tour, um, clearly those those three guys are are apart. And I think um, Sinner's issue is uh, Alcaraz has had this same problem with his body breaking down. Missed the Australian Open this year because of a of an injury that he suffered in practice. And Sinner's missed a lot of tennis in the last couple of years because of injuries, and seems to be uh, prone to getting hurt he's got a really really clean way of striking the ball but again a bit like rude if you don't see him live you don't appreciate how hellaciously hard he hits the ball yes. and the physics the physics at work and he's also you know he's a obviously a great athlete i mean he was a terrific skier and at the uh, at the young youth level and and i've watched video of him skiing and i've covered a lot of skiing and the guy's obviously you know phenomenal at that but he's he's a bit raw bone still and and moving around the court, it's not as fluid as other players that I've seen, but it doesn't mean that he's not going to be a, you know, a Grand Slam winner down the road. And I think you would be a little crazy to, to bet against either one of those guys winning at least one in the next five to ten years for sure. But a lot of things can happen, and tennis is really so much about the body and about you know the physicality of the game today, and who's able to sustain that week to week, month to month grind and have their body hold up. So. I just I do know that these guys now with the resources that are available they're getting the best you know backup support and and the best um, you know off court stuff they can get so that that'll certainly help their chances but yeah those three guys in that very narrow band of what a tennis generation can be are certainly the class of the field court is a little bit older yeah and I think you know not not a whole lot and I think um, you know, to me he can he can slide in with those guys too if he gets healthy and plays his best tennis. I'm glad to hear how bullish you are on Corda because not that I'm not because of anything against him. I just, I, I, I think maybe generally discounting maybe American male tennis players at the moment. So I, I, I am genuinely glad to hear uh, how, again, how, how bullish you are on Corda going into the future. Yeah. And, you know, Randy, for your listeners, if anybody's still listening at this point after we've talked <laughs> of course, detail now of for, course. for quite a while, I, I would say that this is actually a really good time in American men's tennis. Let's not let's not diminish it. I mean, it's the bar is ridiculously high historically. <laughs> You're not going to get back there right. anytime soon. I'm not saying you'll never get back there again, but I mean, the time of Sampras, Agassi, Courier, Chang, and then some you know, lesser but very bright lights like Todd Martin and Mal Washington, you know, back we're not going to get back there again. You know, four American men routinely winning, or three routinely winning majors, and then Michael Chang with the, one of the greatest victories of all time, the French Open in his teens. So that that that's not coming anytime soon. But there's been a nice rebuild. Two American men in the top ten with TFO and Fritz, both fairly young, and um, a guy like Corda who has a chance to be in there as well down the road. And then you got guys like Tommy Paul, who also has had a good year, got to the semifinals in Australia. I love and watching Tommy Paul. Tennis. He's, yeah, he's he's one of my favorites to watch. Yeah, you have good taste. I mean, he's not no big big weapon, but he's just an all court all all action kind of player. And he he also could be top ten in the world at some point here. Um, mm-hmm. So I think this is a good moment for men's tennis in the U.S. And it, it don't want to be churlish about it and and compare them always to the golden eras of the past. It, there's been progress made, and 
and it should be acknowledged. Well, let's turn then to the to the women's side. Uh, a, a few names, kind of, we can we can keep with the same exercise. The first one, I, I it's not really a, a matter of if she'll win more majors in the next five years. She's won four already. That's Iga Schwantek. She's won three of the last five. She's now, I found this interesting, so in, in preparation for this, I googled the list of the, the most Grand Slams won by female professional tennis players, because I was curious about current players, and you have Venus with seven, who's, you know, at 43, she is still current, but for all intents and purposes, not, not really a slam threat. But then you have Iga Schwantek, along with Naomi Osaka, at four, and, and those are your current leaders. I guess my question, Christopher, is is should Sviantek be a bigger story than she is? I feel like she hasn't really broken through, at least in America, like other major champions. And I, I know there's a U.S. bias there, and, and we like our American champions, but should she be a bigger deal than she is and and i say that as a casual tennis fan i'm sure in your circles she's a much you know she, she's much more appreciated but i guess for more mm. casual tennis fans well you know I, you, you cannot impose those things they they, they occur um they, they, there's a sense of somebody has right time right place hits the societal buttons and and strikes a chord and that's what elevates you know a great athlete to a higher level and that's what happened with naomi osaka really i mean yeah, her four majors, but the fact that she, you know, defeated Serena to win her first one in that incredibly contentious, crazy match at the U.S. Open, that was a introduction to the world in a lot of ways. So that was that was how it began. So high profile from the start there, and then with the intersection of Black Lives Matter and and sort of Naomi's positioning in the world as a uh, you know part Japanese, part African American, part. Um, with a Haitian background, I mean, it's it's just culturally fascinating person, and has had a lot of a uh, you know strong stands in her short time at the top in a lot of ways, and now has faded away. Hopefully, we'll come back and play and play top level tennis again. That's that's her intent, from what I understand. But someone like like Sviantek, you know, I, I don't think there's been a a breakout, probably because people don't have that same sense of of uh, intersection there that might exist with other other champions. But they, but maybe they're missing the fact that that Iga is somebody who is is very thoughtful. I got a chance to spend quite a bit of time with her in in 2022 and got to know her pretty pretty well as a journalist. I don't don't know her on a personal level, but did get some quality reporting in. And I was really impressed by how thoughtful she was and how intentional she was and how much she has a long term plan and how much she sort of studies uh, great athletes and great tennis players and and wants to. Uh, to use her platform for things that she believes in strongly. And one of those things is as a Polish citizen is the, the war in, in Ukraine. And mm. she's been, I have to say of any um, global star in sports, definitely one of the most outspoken still wearing the ribbon for Ukraine in her hat when she plays matches is very strong and consistent about her, her, her point of view on it. And has taken a bold stand in a lot of ways in a sport that has not really followed up on that. So if you want to look for somebody who's got some integrity about their ideas and what they want to project, I mean, she certainly deserves more attention for that. She's not just a tennis player. She's also somebody who's going to take on, I think, the role of societal spokesperson and has had issues with anxiety herself, at least in some lower level, and talked about how important mental health is to her and has a performance psychologist with her 
full time, which I know has happened on the golf tour as well. So, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to get to know about Iga, and a, and a lot there, a lot of substance, and her game. You know, it depends what your tastes are. Are you? Uh, is she a a fluid Federer-esque type player? No, but the forehand is is a spectacular shot. Airborne, huge topspin, sort of Rafa Nadal-like in the way she hits it. She's a very aggressive, sort of kinetic player. So it just depends on your tastes, I think, in a lot of ways. But clearly, I don't think people have made the cultural connections on a wider level with, with Iga that they've made with some of these other champions like Naomi, Naomi more recently. And, and she, didn't, she did come on the, on, the, on the scene rather rapidly, winning the French Open the way she did, mm-hmm. being unseated. But that was also during the pandemic period. French Open was out of its usual time in October there in, in 2020. So that tournament was a little bit off the radar. So her star turn moment really didn't happen until until a bit later for the wider world, I would say. And I, I would just add, I, I love all that. And I would just say to what you said earlier about a, a lack of a true rivalry right now. And, and I think that the more she can create not that it's up to her to create but uh, the more that there becomes a real rivalry between let's say her and Sabalenka or her and Rabakina I I think that will help kind of raise her profile as well yeah and unlike Alcaraz who's getting the chance to I mean he he has played Nadal and he's obviously getting a chance this season to play Djokovic in at least one big high profile match Um, you know Iga's not getting that chance Mm -hmm. Uh, Serena's gone now um, so won't get the chance to match up against her. Simona Halep, as I mentioned, is, is suspended right now, another sort of established champion. Uh, so Iga's not really getting to play off uh, the great generation of the past as much as some of these younger men's players are. And also the player who really should have been her big rival, um, well, two of them, Osaka and Ash Barty. Osaka has, has sort of been semi-retired uh, for a while now and yeah. obviously been a maternity leave and and uh, supposed to give birth soon, and, and will hopefully come back to the tour uh, for 2024. But has been out of the picture. And and Ash Barty, number one in the world, very appealing player and character, and would have been a great foil for Igor Swiatek. Um, ended up retiring at age 25, and no sign of her coming back. So, women's tennis has lost some big star power that could have matched up with Iga as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, great point there. Somebody who I think I, I well I hope can be a rival and maybe we're still a few years away i'm really curious your take on coco golf i will say you had an excellent piece recently on your Substack channel just kind of about tennis prodigies and and why you know tennis lends itself to people getting really excited about these maybe next big things my question though in addition to maybe if she can win a slam in the next five years Coco's 19 right now. Uh, I believe I checked yesterday. She's the only teenager in the top 40 of the the current WTA rankings. Uh, She's made three slam finals. She's been in the semis at Australia and Paris this year. Is she in a good spot? Is, Is she where she needs to be to kind of keep advancing and become, you know, perhaps the number one player in the women's game eventually? Yeah, Randy, I don't have all the numbers in my head. Three slam finals, that's got to include doubles because her only slam final was the French Open last year in, uh, when, she, when she lost to uh, 
Tishviantek. Maybe I look. Maybe I was. I you know I was. It was Wikipedia, so maybe I just glanced at it and yes. Might be doubles, but so she, yeah, <laughs> she's catch. had some no good results. And uh, part of that column that you referred to, I mean, part of that was just sort of the sense that once somebody gets hyped up at such an early age, and you know, Coco Goff made her first big impression at Wimbledon, you know, as a qualifier at age 15, got to the fourth round, beat Venus Williams in the first round. So, again, big splash, um, big public attention. And then that's tough to deal with because suddenly you're – Looking at the physical gifts and, and the charisma of Coco and, and the early result there, you're just thinking next dominant player. Well, that hasn't happened, and I don't think it was ever fair to think it was going to happen. Um, there have been cases in the past where you know, the Monica Sellis's and Steffi Graffs and people like that who have come through Tracy Austin back in the day where that Chris Everett. There have been plenty of examples in women's tennis of prodigies fulfilling that potential sooner than later. But I'm not really, I'm not really clear that that Coco's game as it is right now is, is, is a game set for dominance. And I don't think she's underperforming necessarily. Maybe expectations got inflated, but what you see is a, you know, in terms of a 19 year old tennis player and an athlete has had a very successful start to her career was number one in the world in doubles. That's not an, in any way a, a small feat in a, especially women's game when a lot of the top women singles players play doubles. So that shouldn't be diminished. And in terms of singles, you know there are there are some things in her game that hold her back, and and you know it's it's tough to to win the biggest titles without a really reliable great forehand, and her forehand has been in and out. It's not a, it's not always a great shot. It's proven shaky under big match pressure. Um, sometimes her positioning on the court and where she plays is a little bit too defensive. Uh, has had problems with her second serve consistency as well, and some double faulting under pressure and, you know, learning how to hit that really consistent, uh, reliable second serve is so important to success in tennis. So those are technical obstacles. And then obviously, you know, she's a young woman maturing in the spotlight and how to navigate all of that and, and still very connected to her family. Her father is still her principal coach. He's gone through a number of coaches now, sort of as co-coaches or assistant coaches. So there's a lot of Maybe some instability in that element, not on the overall family aspect, but just on the other people who come into the picture. So, you know, I'm not going to get too critical at this stage, but I don't think people should expect her to be the next uh, Serena Williams. I don't think that's a fair assessment at this point. Um, Does she have the the tools and and, uh, the smarts to be a Grand Slam champion? Absolutely, she does. And I wouldn't bet against her, but I, I, I do feel like some of the matchups with people that are very close to her in age, like Iga Sviantek, who I, 21 or 22, Iga, I think maybe 21, 22. I, I think I saw 22 now. Yeah, 22. So only a couple of years older than than Coco. You know, Iga has really dominated um, mm-hmm. Coco and has been able to expose that forehand quite a lot and uh, and really take take the game to her and and and, and beat her pretty pretty solidly in, in important matches. And that's a matchup she's going to have to find a way to solve if she wants to to win a, a number of, of major titles in it. Right now, it's clearly tilting toward Iga. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, this year, she's she's been, a, I think, a top 10 performer in terms of the majors, quarterfinals, uh, but hasn't been able to uh, to go beyond that. And uh, I think that's where her game is right now. 
and it was double i you're exactly right uh just to correct what i said earlier two of her finals appearances were doubles as as well as both of her semifinals appearances this year were in doubles so i was obviously looking at the wrong chart uh i apologize great catch no, doubles, doubles matters randy for yeah. sure it does yeah but singles if that's the barometer we're talking about yes yeah, it has it hasn't been a off the chart season for her in singles no well, just a couple more, if you'll allow, uh, and then I will I will get you out of here. Less than two years ago, we saw Emma Raducanu and Leila Fernandez in the U.S. Open final. Um, was an awesome run by each of those young women. Are they? This is hard because they're both still so young. But w- what do you think the next five years has in store for each of those women? Yeah, that's tough. For a lot of the things we just talked about with Coco, I, I don't think it's responsible on my part to sort of, you know, basically write them off at this stage. Whatever it was that they had for that uh, that run in um, in New York is somewhere within them still. Obviously, a lot of things had to happen um, for those those two runs to occur. I mean, Layla in particular, I don't have all the names locked into my head, but had to beat some major players to get there. And Emma had to do something that's never been done before by a man or a woman, that is to get through court, you know, qualifying and win a major, even though her path uh, was not as, uh, as, as arduous as, as Layla's was. You know, it's moment in time, right energy. That was a special tournament in a lot of ways with a lot of positive energy after the pandemic. I mean, there was just a lot of things going on there on a psychological, emotional, cosmic level. <laughs> yes. uh, I think they all fed off of that to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, but Emma's not. Emma hasn't done anything remotely close to that. And honestly, you know, Layla had a decent run at the French Open last year, ended up getting hurt in it, and and has had a couple of good wins here and there. But they haven't come close to that, as you said. So it's for me at this stage, looking at who else is in the picture already, looking at the Sviantek, uh, Rybakina, Sabalenka, uh, look at some young players who are, are emerging, like Amira Andreva, who did really well in her first major at the French Open this year. Lost to Coco Goff. That's the reason I wrote that column. Because also a young teenager as well. There's other players that are in the mix, and a whole lot of veteran talent as well. Karolina Mukova, who we didn't talk about, is a Czech player who's been hurt a lot, but is a brilliant all-court talent. Played some dazzling tennis to get to the French Open final on clay. Her tennis, if she's healthy, should translate extremely well to Wimbledon and to the grass. So there's all kinds of players lurking that are being dangerous. So it's hard to imagine Emma or Layla putting together a run like that again, and especially Raducanu's had some pretty significant surgeries now. You saw pictures of her in the hospital with her hands and her wrists bandaged and after surgeries and has had some other things that have had to be cleaned up. Um, you know, it's, it's not easy to carry the burden that she created for herself by that spectacular debut. Has had other good runs. She got to the fourth round at Wimbledon before that, a lot long before, so she's not just a, a one-hit wonder in that sense, but it's a Darwinian world that... Uh, top level tennis world and if you're not I don't see Emma having a big big weapon mm-hmm. you see a Sviantek with her with her forehand or, or you see a Sabalenka with her ground strokes or Rybakina with her serve Emma doesn't have that uh, she, she's a great mover and a very fluid striker of the ball but gonna have to work for every point that she wins at the tour level so I, I would think the odds of another major win are against her but uh, if she can get healthy now she's she's definitely a, t- a top ten, top twenty player in terms of her her ball striking ability and her movement. And Layla, Layla to me, I have a lot of respect for Layla. I think Layla is an overachiever just yeah. in terms of her the way she uh, her technique and the way she plays. And I, and she's going to beat a lot of people with her tenacity and her and her ability to uh, 
to produce uh, surprising shots and, and, and her grit. But again, to win seven matches against the best in the world, and she hasn't done it yet. She, she won six. But um, to win seven, also a little hard to see at this point. In the interest of time, you and I, I had put a f- few more names on the on the agenda. Bianca Andrescu, uh, you mentioned Mira Andriva. Uh, we have Ans Jabor, the American Jess Pagula. Uh, let me ask you, though, Chris, anybody on the women's side, kind of in the spirit of this conversation, that has you excited over the next five years that we may not have mentioned yet? Well, I'm, I'm not going to be hypocritical and, and sort of now prattle on about the teenagers and how you know young <laughs> young player making one big splash <laughs> makes me want to watch them for the next five years. But I kind of I definitely am curious to watch uh, Mira Andreva and see what she can do because obviously to come out of really very very no high level tennis and have a little run in Madrid and then have a little run at the French Open and extremes extremely mature uh, just really. Listen to one of her interviews if you can, if you're interested in, mm-hmm. in tennis. Just listen to this young woman in her first sort of interviews on camera. Just really you know, feel very natural and, and comfortable in that spotlight. But then again, comments like mine right here, they pile on. <laughs> it all feeds in. How I do you, know. how do you navigate know. all that? But yeah. she, is, she has definitely got a, a big-time platform for her tennis and uh, only 16 years old. So I'm definitely curious to see how, how she does for sure. And um, and Coco Goff because Coco's only nineteen and has has learned a lot. I'm sure during her years on the tour already, she's been out there for about three years now. So mm-hmm. pandemic interrupted a little bit of it, but definitely somebody who uh, deserves our attention. But there are many. Yeah, I, I think that, those 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 are two for sure to focus on. Awesome. Uh, can I put you on the spot for a, a, a Wimbledon pick on the men's and women's side for singles? I think I think Alcaraz has the game to win Wimbledon and the talent. I, mean, I just watched him win Queens, and and he looked like he was getting better every match. Uh, but I, I just think Novak knows how to win everywhere, but really knows how to win on grass, which is what few guys understand how to do. He's got all that experience. I think he'll be healthy and fresh coming in. Um, it's it's hard to pick against him just based on his grass court record his ability to handle big pressure, the fact that the younger guys haven't been able to really have that uh, grass court major experience yet. One of the guys who has, Matteo Berrettini, played a you know, very good final against Novak a couple of years at Wimbledon, big Italian, mm-hmm. big, big serve, big forehand, yeah. had a lot of great grass, grass court uh, you know, affinities, isn't healthy. So it's hard to see him being able to, to break through and, and, and win. And... Uh, Obviously, if Nadal were here, Nadal's a great grass court player as well. Two-time Wimbledon champion. Was playing great grass court tennis last year till he got hurt again. So, yeah, it's just it's just hard. I, I think you could see another Novak Alcaraz uh, match, which would be great. Yeah. Could be the final. Uh, but I'm, I'm not picking against Djokovic best of five at this stage. And then on the women's side, women's side, I would have picked Rabakina. Uh, I think she won Wimbledon last year. Her serve is a huge weapon. Hits the ball flat and low and hard, and has had a great, great season. But she's had some in, uh, illness in, issues lately, and uh, had to pull from the French Open, and just had to pull from Eastbourne as well. So I think that takes her a little bit out of the favorite mold, even though I, I still like her chances if she is healthy. And um, I don't see Sviantec winning because I feel like even though she's uh, number one in the world and 
grass remains something in her head she's not comfortable in. It may take her a couple more years to reach a level where she's able to win uh, on the grass. I think she can play very well on it. But she's a you know, extreme grip on the forehand, heavy topspin player that side. Her serve is, is good but not great in my opinion. So even though I think she, she could win Wimbledon someday, I don't think it's going to be this year. So I guess I'd have to go with the other member of the, the best three this year. That would be Sabalenka. Like Love to see Jabur win it. Uh, Ons Jabur from Tunisia. Great, flashy all-court player. Loves the grass. Lost in the final you know, last year um, to Rybakina. And has a great game for all surfaces, but I, I think especially for grass. So she'd have a shot, but hasn't had a great season so far. So it's a little bit open there. But if I had to pick, I'd, I'd say Sabalenka. All right. Well, uh, we're going to hold you to these. These, these, you know, these carry great <laughs> weight. Be, so I won't be reachable after the tournament ends. You'll be able to find me to track me down and, and and gloat. Last question: Are you reading anything either inside of tennis? What What do you like to read, or outside of tennis? Have you read any good books? I always like to ask my smarter guests what they're reading. All right. Give me a second because I, I knew this was coming. So I did. I did get the book. I just finished. Okay. I'll hold it up because it deserves to be held up. I'm not sure when this was even published. But this, I'm obviously writing a biography now, just like I did with Federer, and I'm doing one on Nadal now, obviously. And so I'm interested in biography. And I read this. A buddy of mine gave me this for Christmas, called "The American Story." You know, it's it's written nominally by David Rubenstein, but it's it's really a, a series of transcribed interviews, believe it or not, with with biographers and mostly presidential biographers, and um, just terrific. Really, really fascinating. I learned a lot about American history that I didn't know or I'd, or I'd certainly forgotten. And just it gets into process a bit about how you look at historical figures, how you how you organize biography. Um, but above all, it's just a great history lesson. And honestly, it's not a literary thing. It's it's interviews. Yeah. But I mean, basically, it's uh, – I just thought it was great. I, I couldn't put it down. And it, not just because I was writing a biography, just in general. I mean, you got people in here like – you know, David McCullough, obviously, on John Adams. You've got Doris Kearns Goodwin on Abraham Lincoln. You've got uh, Bob Woodward on Richard Nixon. You know, there's probably 15 or 16 different biographers interviewed in here, and just a terrific book. And obviously, I've been reading a lot of Nadal biographies in various languages. So. It's That answer is exactly why I like to ask the question, because I have written that down, and you can bet that it is on my list to pick up the next time I go to the bookstore. That's fantastic. Thank you. No, no, I'm happy to share. It was really, really good, really good, and and I was surprised that essentially a book full of transcripts could be that readable, but it really is. Well, perfect. Uh, Christopher, this is, I just want to reiterate, big thrill for me to be able to talk tennis with you so again thank you for your time uh enjoy wimbledon you can bet you are welcome uh would love to talk about the nadal book when it comes out and uh maybe we can talk even before that but keep up the great work on substack and i think i speak for everybody cannot wait for your work on uh on rafa so thank you very much hey randy thank you and hopefully by the time i talk to you next i'll have climbed off the limb where you put me you know at the end of the limb <laughs> And all, and all these projections and, and predictions. So. Well, I was going to say, maybe... Hopefully, hopefully there'll be no record of this beyond beyond the next uh, couple of weeks. Maybe next time we'll, we'll just dive right into the, all the geopolitical stuff. We'll, we'll just stay mm-hmm. there. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, Chris. Have a good one. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Drop this.
Vest and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right